The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. To uh, recap, we began with a form of what's called mindfulness of the body. There are many ways to practice mindfulness of the body. Careful attention to our meditation posture is one of them. And it can have the benefit of helping us learn how to sit. Most of us have been sitting with lousy posture, rigidity, or who knows what, computer neck. And it may take years, at least it's taken me uh, decades, and I'm still learning how to sit in a way that's easy to relax and be comfortable. It strikes me as strange how Many people feel obligated to sit in discomfort and doggedly refuse to actually learn all the little things you can do to be relatively comfortable. Of course, injuries and certain illnesses create obstacles but often it's just stubbornness. So we started with mindfulness of body. Again, there are many approaches to that. And then shifted to mindfulness with breathing, which is the meditation system taught in most detail by the Buddha, at least according to the early record of the Buddha's teaching. And I brought in just one small piece of that much larger teaching where for a while we consciously, very gently, consciously, deepen the breathing. And out of that will emerge various options, some of which I'll come back to in a little bit. And just to be clear, deepening the breathing is not something to do forever. It's one piece of a much more sophisticated practice. But if done skillfully, it will help us to sit still for long periods of time and actually enjoy sitting still. If we learn about the breath in certain ways, It has such benefits. Next, I 
shared um, a sample of my approach to what's called perception of light. That's aloka sanya in the early texts. And this is a traditional remedy or antidote for drowsiness, inner dullness, sluggishness, which many of us feel on a Friday evening unless we had an espresso two hours ago. I'll say more about this as well. And then I closed with a simple metta practice. I I prefer to do metta, something along the lines of what I included in the guided meditation. All of these, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breathing, or mindfulness of posture, as a way to be mindful of body, mindful of breathing, then um, perception of light, such as the light of a starry night, and then metta, loving kindness, or simply friendliness, goodwill, benevolence, These are some of the many meditation practices found in traditional Buddhist teachings. And I'd like to explore this further. I'll draw mainly on Theravada Buddhism because that's my background and training. And especially, I'll refer back to the earliest level of teaching. To be honest, so-called Theravada is not the earliest level, even though that's what the propaganda often claims. There's an earlier strata of teaching out of which the various historical schools and traditions such as Theravada developed. So I'll draw somewhat on Theravada, but especially things that can be traced to the early record of teachings, such as found in the Pali Suttas. Those who met me before know that this is central to my my approach, going back to the early sources. So now drawing on those sources, I'd like to speak to the diverse styles of meditation. And 
partly by limiting this to Theravada and early Buddhism, it narrows the field a little bit. Though most of the things I touch on, we could look at Mahayana or Tibetan sources, as well as Christian, Hindu, Jewish, Taoist, um, pagan, etc. I'm sure I left out various things. So I, I want to touch on some broad categories of meditation which are found in the early Buddhist teachings and then elaborated in later Buddhist teachings. And my reason for exploring this here tonight, as well as the many times I've done so over the last year or so, is to try to explore and illustrate the many uses of mindfulness. Many of us in a place like this have learned a certain approach to mindfulness meditation, or it may be called insight meditation. Depending on the teacher or teachers, and I'm not speaking of any one place or teacher in particular, but often a certain aspect of mindfulness is highlighted. But if we explore the bigger range of meditation practice, we can come to see a somewhat varied use of mindfulness. And of course, I'm referring not to the English word as it's used now, which is pretty much all over the place. I'm referring to the word the Buddha used, sati, which has a number of aspects. And these show up in various ways in different meditation practices. All forms of meditation that I know of utilize sati or mindfulness, but how they use it can vary. Similarly with samadhi or concentration. Samadhi is not the same as mindfulness. It's the ability of mind, awareness, psyche to focus, collect, gather in a way that's um, not scattered or distracted. And perhaps the most important characteristic of samadhi or concentration is non-distraction. But in America, it's important to point out that it's also very relaxed. 
And if you give Americans a goal, many of us get tense trying to get there, do it, and be successful, earn our brownie points, and so on. Of course, many of us are recovering from this, but generally it's important to realize that the samadhi the Buddha advocated doesn't have to be intense. That's more something that goes back to the 60s. Intensity. Uh, the Buddha really didn't push intensity. Samadhi should be peaceful, quiet, calm, but it's also alive and bright and fluid. How does samadhi concentration and inner collectedness and stability operate variously in different forms of meditation? There are some forms that explicitly work at strengthening and deepening samadhi or concentration. Others just work with naturally occurring concentration. I believe it's helpful to be familiar with both approaches and actually many more. Like metta practice can be quite good. Loving kindness practice can be quite effective for cultivating concentration, but it also uses concentration. You can't do it without some. Some mindfulness is needed, some concentration, and then that can be further cultivated, as well as the quality of heart called metta or benevolence. One of the practices was called perception of light. The word perception here is from a word that can sort of includes what we call memory or, um, well, it's got a lot of meanings, but when I encouraged you to bring up an image of a full moon or a sunrise, you might think of that as being about memory. The Buddha's language would also use the word perception. This is something that's used in a number of forms of meditation practice. The metta loving-kindness practices will use it to some extent. More visual practices like picturing a sunrise use it. Or to be even more blatant, there are meditations that use imagination. 
some forms of meditation would um, try to drop all imaginings. Yet there are other kinds where we learn to use imagination skillfully, constructively, in ways that are emotionally or psychologically and especially spiritually healing. You could also throw in the word uh, creativity. I didn't give an example tonight, but some forms of meditation use thought. And I encourage you to take this seriously because there are still people who think the goal of meditation is to stop thinking. And that generally causes more suffering than it does good. There are forms of meditation where thinking gradually slows down and drops away. But that's much different than trying to stop thinking. And hope the sooner you uh, learn that, the less you'll suffer during meditation. But there are forms of meditation where thought is part of the process. And lastly, different meditation practices will draw on various, let's call them uh, healthy inner skills. You could call them virtues, healthy attitudes. The broad term in the Buddha's language is kusala dhammas, wholesome, skillful phenomena. Every form of meditation will highlight some of these. Mindfulness, again, being prominent, but also an adequate level of concentration, plus some other things like knowledge. It's generally useful to have some knowledge about what we're doing. I don't mean reading a ton of books, but if you don't know what you're doing, Don't be surprised if it doesn't go anywhere or often ends up in places we'd rather not end up. So getting some appropriate knowledge to guide our practice is usually an important piece. These these different styles of meditation, I encourage you, if you follow through with this, both tonight and maybe explore in the future when you have opportunities, it's useful to see similarities among the different styles as well as the differences. I believe this helps us to have a more nuanced understanding of meditation. Instead of assuming 
there's one kind of meditation that is the kind I do. And we may believe the kind we do is what so-and-so taught, but often not necessarily. (laughs) We might be a loyal student of someone. It doesn't mean we're actually doing what they teach. (laughs) Because often we're creative in ways we're not always mindful of. Don't Take that personally, of course. (laughs) So in discussing uh, various approaches to meditation, noticing similarities, differences, as well as overlaps can be useful in developing a more nuanced understanding of meditation nuts and bolts. By the way, early Buddhism is quite pragmatic about these things. Early Buddhism wasn't shy about if there's something causing you suffering, do something about it. Don't just suffer. And yet, um, sometimes it sounds like some of us feel we shouldn't do anything about it. We should just watch. And of course, there's a role for skillful observation. But the key is it's skillful. But there's a lot of watching that can just be stuck. And so part of one of my objectives in trying to sketch out these things is so we can tell when our observation is skillful. But also if something is just causing trouble, why not take a more direct approach instead of watching it for the next 10 years? That was meant to be slightly provocative. (laughs) But don't take it too seriously, of course. Lastly, I'm still doing the introduction. Um, This whole um, thing about different approaches and styles of meditation is at least tonight, to give you an overview of a variety of ways to address your spiritual needs. Maybe you've got the idea, I don't assume that there's one approach to meditation that will satisfy all our needs. I have my own main approach, My foundation practice has been mindfulness with breathing for more than 30 years. And yet, on a regular basis, I'll do another five, six kinds of meditation. Sometimes for a few minutes, sometimes longer. 
And then there are some others I might do once or twice a year when circumstances call for it. I've been fortunate to be exposed to a lot of practices, plus I read a lot of books. I've met many meditators and teachers. But the resources are now available to all of us to address our spiritual needs as they become clear to us. So, without further ado, let me run through, let's see if there's time for seven large groupings or categories of meditation. I'll start with one that's probably familiar to most of you, and I'll use terminology from the early teachings, which is to be mindful and clearly aware of feelings, thoughts, ideas, memories, as they appear, change, and pass away. Nowadays, you'll often hear this in terms of mindfulness, but in the early teaching, mindfulness or sati is accompanied by a word that means something like clear comprehension. So it's not just being aware of something, but also having some understanding what we're aware of. Say, a feeling of pleasure, a feeling of discomfort, a memory, an image, a thought, or maybe thoughts that have stirred up into thinking. And we don't simply watch this stuff come and go, but pay enough attention, we start to understand what is pleasure or pain in in our experience. What are memories like? What do they do? Thoughts. What's the difference between a thought that comes up and more active thinking? When is thinking helpful? When is it a distraction? When is it damaging and hurtful? When is it conducive to spiritual practice? That's one broad category of meditation. I'll, I'll emphasize the word category because there might be many methods or at least variations within that category. You don't have to learn them all, but to have one effective approach that helps you to notice pleasure and pain arising and moving and passing through, thoughts, memories, images, and so on. 
And we do so to cultivate such mindful, clear awareness, not only during formal meditation, but as much as possible bringing that through into the rest of life. So that's one main category. Another important category, and again I'll use a couple old terms, drawing on one discourse in particular, there's meditation for the sake of happy dwelling, sukha vihara, pleasant dwelling or pleasant living. Now, this doesn't mean meditating to be happy in the modern consumer way. So it will take some exploration what sukha or joy or (coughs) what is pleasant dwelling as intended here. It has to do with being calm, It has to do with being at peace with oneself. And often the examples given are situations of deeper concentration in which the usual inner turbulence has subsided. And we can just sit in a pleasant, calm way. In Tibetan or English translations of Tibetan teachings on this, you'll see the word calm abiding, which I like. And in the Pali, there's the term that I've translated pleasant dwelling. And pleasant here has a sense of ease. It's not forced, it's not stressed. There are practices that foster, cultivate, and deepen this. And many of us can benefit from such practices. Third, a category that I think of as heart practices. In American, uh, modern American Buddhism in particular, there's a certain emphasis on the heart. And we'll hear about teachings and practices concerning loving kindness or benevolence, compassion, gratitude, appreciation, forgiveness, and so on. There's a standard set of four that many of us have heard about, but I include others that cultivate a healthier, more open, 
more um, expansive heart. This isn't really about emotionality. But we, we can all tap into our natural capacity for kindness, to care, to care when others are hurt and suffering, to appreciate a beautiful sunrise or someone's talents or skills. There are many things we can appreciate, including in ourselves, in our own lives and practices. Some of us find that a particular heart practice, such as gratitude or forgiveness, can help heal some of the wounds that we're walking around with. And that, in turn, will support so-called mindfulness practices, so-called concentration practices, so-called insight practices. And by the way, insight can occur with any of these practices if we're really paying attention. Insight isn't limited to so-called insight meditation. I'll be naughty again and say, sometimes insight meditation gets in the way. Now, that's not the fault of insight meditation. It's other baggage that gets layered on. And some of that baggage can be loosened up or healed with skillful heart practices. So that's three categories. By the way, some particular meditation practices, say, I'll use um, metta again, loving-kindness practice, may primarily focus on the heart opening. Yet, it tends to deepen concentration if done well. And it necessarily uses mindfulness in certain ways. For example, if you use one of the formulas, may all beings be well, may all beings be happy, that's mindfulness to do that. And you also need memory. You have to remember a few of those phrases and then Mindfulness is what brings it into active awareness and holds it. I'll explore some of that more tomorrow. So a particular practice might fit primarily in one of these categories, but is useful in other areas as well. So I don't want to make these categories too rigid or narrow. A fourth category is what I think of as 
energizing and uplifting practices. The little thing we did with some natural source of light, generally an attractive, pleasant one, that can be a way of brightening up the inner world, which will energize appropriately. The goal is not to give us a jolt. Many of us are skewed by the caffeine we drink or the high pace of our society. In meditation, though, we want an adequate level of energy to be fully alert alive, vital, attentive, sensitive. Sometimes that's lacking. There are little practices that can be dropped in for a few minutes, or when you're good, all it does is remember the moon. Boom, there's a moon. It brightens up. It might take five seconds. You can also use metta in a similar way. I think of one of our cats. It lifts the mood, if that's helpful and appropriate. So there are practices that mostly use mindfulness, of course, concentration, again, but a certain amount of visualization or imagination. And we can do that skillfully to brighten up things inside so that we're not just spinning wheels or kind of stuck in a dark place, just kind of um, stumbling around, floundering, and not really learning much. Usually those places, not a whole lot of insights happening. As if there's a pretty good insight, things change. So to be stuck in something for quite a while is generally a sign of something's lacking and the insight's not occurring. So you could argue just to have the insight that a little brightness might help for the inner experience to be more alert, more agile, more sensitive, that could be a pretty valuable insight in that moment. And then, of course, let go. Any insight we cling to uh, usually becomes an opinion. And of course, we're stuck with those too, but opinions are not insights. They might be former insights. <laughs> Category number one, two, three, four, five. Let me just mention devotional practices. I don't know if Common Ground's a devotional kind of place with a lot of bows and 
prostrating the Buddhas and such things. That's not my main gig, personally, but I've had a fair amount of experience with practices that cultivate faith. Now, in certain forms of North American Protestant Buddhism, that's my background. I'm more Catholic these days, but uh, growing up it was Methodist and Lutheran grandparents. But in, some of us aren't so crazy about the word faith, but uh, I think it's crucial, especially as it begins to dawn on us that Real spiritual work requires dedication. And I can't figure out how to have a dedicated practice without faith. Now, what our faith is in is open for exploration. But as we begin to get a sense of what is worth trusting as guides or north stars for our spiritual life, not just meditation, but the whole show. How can we deepen and strengthen such faith so that our practice in all aspects of life is increasingly dedicated? devotional practices, chanting, bowing, um, simple rituals can have a role here if we see that as a need. I want to stress that last part. I'm not trying to tell you what you have to do. I'm trying to sketch possibilities And deep down, it's up to each of us to see what our needs are and find appropriate ways to address them. Another group of practices I'll call reflections. In the years of my monastic training, plus visits to, say, Chinese monasteries or hanging out with Tibetan practitioners, I sampled and practiced a number of reflections. One common example of this is sometimes translated recollection of death or you could call it a reflection on death, where in a calm, grounded, somewhat orderly way, we think about death. Now, there are ways to do that that just get us all worked up, freaked out, and afraid. That's not so skillful. But if we have those tendencies in us, 
to get more and more familiar with death. And not just the word or the sound, but to explore, for example, when I hear the word death, how do I understand that? When people are afraid of dying, what are they or we actually afraid of? In asking these questions, I get a lot of different answers. People can interpret death in a variety of ways, not always consciously. So we can begin to get clear what death means to us, what about it frightens us or beckons us or whatever, what is awkward and uncomfortable. I've been, I've been working on my will, and it's awkward for me at least to talk about people I love predeceasing me <laughs> to work out those stipulations. Wills are weird for me. For most of my life, I didn't have enough property to have a will, but slowly stuff has accumulated, or I might inherit one of these years. So I've been watching how something in me uh, kind of uh, startles when I speak of my, what if my wife predeceases me, etc., or my siblings, I'm the oldest. So reflection on death, reflection on aging, there are food reflections. There are reflections on the use of other daily requisites, clothing, shelter, medicine. There are reflections on karma, reflections on our past meritorious behaviors and how those support us to a more welcoming future. These are all sketched out in the early teachings and we can draw on those teachings and subsequent developments to explore any of these issues that might be valuable for us. Death is simply one of the more common uh, examples. The last category I'd like to mention is my favorite, though in many ways the most difficult. Drawing on a discourse which I've already mentioned, I didn't name it. It's called the Samadhi Bhavana Sutta. Um, the discourse on cultivation by, with, through, samadhi, or concentration. And the culmination of this discourse is to 
contemplate the inherent tension of clinging to different any aspect of life as me or mine. This isn't the time to spell out all the details. I'll try to be concise. In Buddha's analysis, we suffer because we cling to life in its entirety, in its different aspects or parts. And here we don't mean life in the abstract. We mean life as we're experiencing it moment to moment, breath to breath. Any clinging to life as me or mine results in suffering. It could be minor distress or it could be pretty nasty stuff. Part of our practice is to explore how this happens. And as we are able to explore what clinging is, how it operates, how it happens, how it arises, and its consequences, then we become able to focus attention on the aspects of life that we take personally, that we take egoistically, that we assume are me or mine. It could be the me I assume will be here tomorrow that's happening in my imagination or a certain expectation that you'll be a certain way tomorrow like good obedient students or something. I know better than that, but still. I taught seventh grade in Thailand. They were obedient some days. As we can notice how we cling to the stuff of life as me, as mine, as myself, And it's not the words, it's a certain inner expectation or attitude or grasping. Then we observe how the stuff that's clung to, and it's primarily inner stuff. I know our economy is all about the outer stuff. But in Buddha's teaching, it's the inner stuff. That's the real clinging. And some of the outer stuff is problematic because it's mine or not mine. Like, not my president. (laughs) Well, if we carefully examine the stuff we cling to as me and mine, we will observe an inherent contradiction in that. That there's an inherent tension that all the things we try to own, possess, take personally, control, 
its natures to fall apart. And the more and more clearly we see this, the habit of clinging loosens, dissipates, dissolves. This is the essence of what we now call insight. And its practice, the deepest levels of insight require the ability to be mindful of clinging to me and mine and notice what is being clung to, what thought, what mood, what feeling, say pain or discomfort, or what emotion, and so on. So that concludes tonight's talk, and soon we'll have a question session. If there's anything you'd like uh, further explained or clarified or questions you might have, I think we have about 15 minutes or so. Yes? Let me start it. At the very first point, they they say for physicians, uh, do no harm, and for meditation, it's do it. And uh, very often, my wife and I uh, do not meditate as often as we intend to or would like to, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about having a mind uh, that's more accepting and more looking forward to or uh doing uh setting yourself up so that you're more likely to meditate yeah um well there are a number of things we can do to make it easier one have a nice place to meditate many people do not have a dedicated part of their home and that makes it a little harder to have a place that's either always set up or at least can be set up within a minute without clearing a lot of stuff out of the way. It should be a place that's comfortable where we feel comfortable. So there are things like that. There's a longer list. But um, I would say, like, it doesn't bother me personally if people don't meditate regularly. I'm not encouraging that. But some people think it's tragic, oh, somebody meditated for two years and now they're not. But sometimes we need to pause to really ask questions, why? And the dedication I touched on earlier is partly about that. Have you found in yourself the need? And the, probably not, to be honest. So, and I don't intend that as judgmental or something, but 
we may have a nice idea. Meditation's good, it's helpful, blah, blah, blah. I have those ideas about a lot of things, like eating less dairy. I don't do meat, but a lot of dairy. Anyway, but following through is another thing. So if meditation draws you, examine that, think, ponder, until you touch the nerve, the need in you. Yes, this is something I need. It's not just a good idea. I think often that's what it boils down to. We're bombarded now with lots of advice. Way too many ways to stay busy. That's another thing. If you want to meditate, what are you willing to get rid of? Most of us have some needless garbage in our lives that we could do without. It just takes the guts to go, yeah, this really doesn't do me any good. Trash it. But again, if you free up space, is meditation what will serve your needs? Personally, I think if you have the meditation most appropriate for you, yes, it'll be really valuable. But that's my opinion. It's for you to really touch the need. And for me, I came across that through the ups and downs of when meditation was strong, when I got weak and lazy, and over time learned uh, every day is best. And if not a solid half hour, hour sit, at least five minutes here, five minutes there throughout the day. So in short, challenge yourself to find out why is meditation important for you. And your wife could do the same, but that's for her. <laughs> yes? Um, I know many of us here might know Henry is a psychiatrist who also uses mindfulness. And um, so he has different books that look at either depression or anxiety. Um, and I, my personally, I have ADD. And so I'm wondering about your, how to, you know, find different meditation styles that would be an antidote to whatever mental health issue you might have. And then how to combine that with diet and exercise, medications, and whatever ways of dealing with mental health issues. Yeah, um, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So it sounds like you know somebody who's a good resource in those areas. That's really not my field. Um, I can maybe be of some help with people who, I wouldn't call it mental illness, but more uh, common uh, 
things like anxiety. Every retreat I teach now, something 30 to 40 percent of people speak of anxiety and depression. So meditation may not be the most effective approach, but in some cases it can be an important. Um, it can be helpful with trauma, at least in some cases. Again, it may not be primary. And so really, my limited knowledge of things like this or addiction is work with somebody who knows that area and don't look for a silver bullet, especially. Sometimes we see meditation promoted like a silver bullet, especially those checkout line magazines. (laughs) And that's unfair because meditation's wonderful stuff, but to frame it in a propagandistic way ultimately undermines. I know to a certain degree it mainstreams and that it has value. But especially mental illness, that's fragile, wounded stuff. So to find people who know what they're doing. Yeah, and some meditation teachers have those backgrounds. I know a little bit about addiction through work with friends who are in AA, NA, etc. And I've been learning about trauma, partly connected with my cancer experience. So some areas have a little experience, but it's really personal for each person is my feeling. Uh, can I? Can you say a little bit more about um, uh, the use of story? I've I've been exposed most often to instructions to let go of story, um, and you mentioned a little bit uh, opportunities to use creativity and um, just say a little bit more about when that's most appropriate, maybe. Yeah, I, I said creativity, but I didn't mean story. Because um, I like I think stories are wonderful, but I would call that art or drama or something. What I meant by creativity, like for example, the the one about a full moon, I didn't read that in a book. I took some advice from my teacher and played with it and found something that worked for me. And I've shared it with people and enough people respond that I keep sharing it. So that's partly what I mean. If you're exposed to certain meditation teachings, Learn them, take them seriously, learn them as best you can, pay careful attention, and so on. 
and then be creative. Not in a um, silly or losing the words, not in a way that you're just being creative for its own sake, but the right kind of creativity has curiosity, you care, it's a way of exploring, looking into places you might not have looked before, trying things that your opinion may see, oh, I'm not ready, or blah, blah, that's too advanced. Where those are stories. So now you could create a story making meditation where you counteract some destructive story with a wholesome story. But that wasn't something that I had thought of earlier. And I don't want to stretch the word meditation too big. I wanted to open up fairly big. But uh, I know uh, some doctors who used try to tell me golfing was their meditation. And I learned it was pointless to argue with them. <laughs> <laughs> or I do bike riding meditation. And my point is, no, when we ride a bike, we're either going somewhere or exercising. That doesn't make it a meditation. A meditation is focused on something meditative as its primary purpose. So riding a bike, you can be mindful, and it's good if you're pretty mindful. Um, but that's not usually the purpose. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious about the kind of the markers of progress of the development of our skill within the various forms of meditation. And my, my, I'm very new to this practice, but, um, primarily drawn to concentration practices. And when I look at the suttas and you, you read about right concentration, you often get that formula of the jhana states, the material jhana states, and they seem to have very clear markers of the quality of those states and how you progress through them. And I love that. But some of these other practices, I'm not really sure, like maybe I just haven't heard or maybe there's a different quality to them, but... Uh, how do you know you're getting better at it? How do you know you're doing well? Where is it going? Like I know where the whole path, I understand kind of the whole path where <clears throat> the direction we're going, but if you could speak a little to that. Well, one way to respond is whether it's concentration or something like compassion if you're making progress, you understand what concentration is more and more, more deeply with more subtlety. Um, by the way, those texts about the jhanas which seem pretty clear, but if they're so clear, why do all the people teaching jhana argue so much? <laughs> 
I won't go. I could go on for another hour or two about that, but I don't have that amount of time. But just things that may be clear on paper, in your experience, they're just an exploration. That's basically how I treat now all meditation. It's an exploration. So my emphasis on is there useful, spiritually valuable learning taking place. doesn't have to be conceptual. It can be shifts in behavior, attitudes. Certain emotional traps have less hold on us. Certain qualities like compassion are growing. And that's what I would go by. And so the markers may not always be so obvious because it's subjective. And it's good to remember meditation's inherently subjective. And let's not try to be objective. Let's try to be honest, but we can't spell out pseudo-scientific parameters. I, I guess people try, but I, I'm dubious about that. Um, I just, um, I really enjoyed the perception of light meditation. And I know you described it as um, being conducive to, to being energizing. Um, but I was wondering if that kind of visual, I don't know if you would describe it as visualization or those type of percep- perception-based meditations could also be useful for generating um, insight into Dharma, generally speaking, and how, how it could. Right. Um, I would call that the way I interpreted the term perception of light used a visualization. It uses memory. I've seen full moons. I, with mindfulness, I bring that to mind now and then work with that, explore that. It's generally not directly considered an insight practice. However, as I alluded to earlier, if we do these mindfully with a certain amount of curiosity and inquiry rather than just trying to get something, but if we have this open investigative approach, In doing that practice, you will learn things about mind. How is it that mood can shift sometimes very quickly? Bring up a certain image, mood changes. The more you understand that, the less trapped we are in certain moods. Now, some moods have a real powerful pull on us due to whatever reasons. So it's not always a simple, but at least some things can become quite simple. And if we pay attention,
attention to that, we learn some important things about mind. That one way I phrase it is mind is a shapeshifter. When we cling to mind as me, which we often do, like if we think I'm meditating, who is this I? It might be slightly more accurate to say mind meditates, even though I don't think that's a good way to put it, but we're stuck with words. Whatever it is that's meditating, if we're really paying attention as it plays with, experiments with this visualization, you could learn some valuable things. Hi, Santikaro. Thank you for tonight. Um, Just a technical question. Uh, From two seemingly unrelated sources, I've been taught or been told or instructed to put my tongue at the roof of my mouth. Could you speak to the purpose or function of doing that and... Yeah, I've read that, including last night, in a translation from a 5th century Chinese book that I quite like, so I was paging through. And I've come across that in Tibetan teachings as well. It seems to be derived from a yogic understanding, though in China, it's more the, the, uh, the Taoist, Qigong, Tai Chi lineages. And that when the tongue is against the upper palate and not pushed hard up, but more just laying against the back of the upper teeth, it connects an energy channel. Now, I'm not saying that's true. It's what I've read. My tongue... <laughs> I I stopped trying to do that years ago. And I follow the advice of a yoga teacher friend, which is to let the tongue become as soft as possible all the way back into the throat. So that's more what I do. But the explanations I've read maybe once, twice, long time ago, it connects an energy channel in the body. To my knowledge, the Suttas have no such reference, nor does Theravada Buddhism that I've come across. But of course, there's much I haven't come across. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.